Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Just a quick reminder that we're recording remotely, which of course isn't my preference, but appreciate your patience with the sound quality. As we're still managing life during the COVID-19 pandemic, I wanted to share different perspectives and experts related to this time. Today's guest, Dr. Crystal Lewis, is a clinical psychologist and an expert in treating anxious children and adolescents. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you. So happy to have you here. Really excited to hear about your experience and what you have going on. Can you start by telling us who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Sure. So I'm excited to be here to chat with you. I am a clinical psychologist and currently practicing in Bethesda, Maryland. So I work at the National Institute of Mental Health, where I provide cognitive behavioral therapy to anxious children who are participating in our pediatric anxiety research trials. And I also have a private practice in Chevy Chase, Maryland, where I see children, adolescents, and adults with varying mental health illnesses. I've been here now almost four years, primarily providing therapeutic services and doing some research with my research team at NIH, and then also in collaboration with my previous advisor from graduate school and other colleagues. So I focus on anxiety, as you mentioned, and I'm most interested in looking at ways to make cognitive behavioral therapy or therapy in general more effective for children and adolescents. And so that's some of the work that I'm doing right now. And prior to being here in Bethesda, I was in Chicago for four years, where I worked at the Children's Hospital, Lurie Children's Hospital, providing therapy to anxious children. And I was part of their school-based program as well, where I worked in the schools in Chicago. Amazing. So the National Institutes of Mental Health is affiliated with the NIH, as you just acknowledged, which is where I'm treated, which is how we got connected. How does it work to become a patient on the mental health front? Because I know for me, you know, I'm part of clinical research. Can anybody walk through those doors or what's that look like? Yeah. So essentially through our website where we post the current research trials we have going on, and then myself and a colleague, Erin Berman, we do a lot of community talks. And so we'll go out to schools and talk to PTAs, to teachers, where we talk about the research that we do. We talk about anxiety in general, prevention um, and treatment. And then we say that we have these studies going on. So anyone who hears about our studies, they can call and they'll be screened. And if it's appropriate for them to be a patient within one of our trials, they can be a patient who has anxiety or they can volunteer as a healthy volunteer. So they would complete similar tasks and they would be our comparison group to the kids who have anxiety. That's amazing. And they don't need to be in the Bethesda area. 
No. So for our particular trial right now, we do offer weekly therapy. And so we will have kids who come from not just Montgomery County, um, Howard County in Maryland and from Virginia. And so really within traveling, I would say within distance where they can drive in for their treatment sessions, everything is done on site or was done on site. And so all of our research basically is kids who are in the area. Got it. Makes sense. And so what led you to become a clinical psychologist? And obviously, you know, some level of interest in children. Why was that age group so compelling to you? From a young age, I would say probably late elementary to early middle school, I knew that I really enjoyed working with children. I would often volunteer at hospitals or work at daycares. Mainly, I was young myself, so I was working with very young kids. And I think just like a lot of kids, I thought I would become a pediatrician because I really wanted to be in a helping profession. But it wasn't until high school when I took my first psychology course, and I became intrigued with the workings of the mind and human behavior. And so I became really interested in psychology. And at that point, when I transitioned to college, I immediately picked my major to be clinical psychology and really learned what that was along the way. It wasn't like I had a good idea of what I wanted to do. It's just I knew I wanted to be in psychology and I wanted to get my PhD. And so through college, I attended Lincoln University, which is a very small liberal arts, historically black school that didn't have a lot of exposure to research and doctoral labs. And so my college summers were spent at various universities where I was able to obtain research experience. And so I was at Washington University of St. Louis, University of Utah, working with vulnerable populations and doing um, preventative interventions. And then I was at the Child Studies Center at Yale learning about neuroscience. And it was through all these experiences that I really became invested and interested in a career in clinical psychology. Um, It helped to kind of define my path of, okay, this is what I think I want to do and what I want to study. That's awesome. And it's so interesting to think about being a kid and knowing so clearly what you want to do and then to actually pursue that in your own way down the road is really incredible. You mentioned CBT, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. For those who are not familiar with it, can you explain what it is and how it works? Certainly. Essentially, CBT can be described as a set of skills that we teach to help people identify maladaptive or unhelpful thinking patterns that are connected to or influence their emotions and behaviors. And so CBT treatment generally involves efforts to change thinking patterns by learning cognitive strategies. And then we focus on efforts to change behaviors or actions, which include behavioral strategies like exposure or otherwise known as facing fears or behavioral activation. So ultimately, the goal is to just help the client to become their own therapist by having them complete assignments or homework outside of therapy and giving them strategies to manage psychological symptoms that they might experience. And what we know is CBT can be used as a preventative approach as well for mental health, meaning these strategies are things that we can all benefit from to help increase our general resilience. So it's a great approach. (laughs) Yeah, I've only heard amazing things about it. And many people I know who go to therapists that practice CBT love it. In your experience, do you find that anxious kids grow into anxious adults? That's a great question. I would say, in short, we, we think that about I'd say 30 to 40% of kids will go on to have anxiety in adulthood. With our population and with kids being treated at NIMH, we'd say at least 50% have a chance of not having it as an adult. And so anxiety in children left untreated is certainly likely to worsen and is linked to comorbid conditions. And when we look at the neurobiological underpinnings to anxiety, 
their brain functions look like poor connectivity between certain areas in the brain. Um, but this varies across individuals, right? So there are social and psychological risk factors to the development of anxiety, which also varies. So it's hard to know exactly who and when anxiety might develop, but we know basic risk factors. So for certain kids, they might present with a clinical anxiety disorder and say they're treated, right? Maybe they get a CBT treatment and they no longer have those symptoms and they might be fine going into adulthood. For other kids, though, they might have a specific anxiety disorder. They might get treated. And then, you know, I might see them again. I'm thinking of kids in my private practice a year later coming back with maybe just a different form or different type of anxiety. Maybe they experienced a stressor. It really just depends. For some people, maybe if it's just a specific incident, um, they might have a phobia, right? They were bit by a dog, developed a fear or a phobia of dogs. They were treated for that anxiety disorder. And then that's it, Right. And then for others who might have more of a predisposition to anxiety, genetic predisposition, or have other factors going on, it might be something that they learn how to manage across their lifespan. So it really just depends. But I think the encouraging fact with anxiety is that it is highly treatable, and there are things that we can do to manage the anxiety. Well, I think that's exactly it. The big thing is, if you're willing to and able to get the support that you need, then it is treatable and people can navigate it you know, short term or long term, but it's really having the ability and access to treatment and the right treatment for you. Because, you know, there's plenty of people out there that get treated and then find out, oh, I actually had this thing. And it's so great to get this diagnosis because now it makes more sense for me. Exactly. That is so true. So let's talk a little bit about this crazy current situation we're living in right now. (laughs) What has your experience been like with your current patients and the work that you do during COVID-19. I know the words trauma and PTSD, anxiety and grief are coming up a lot. How has that been in your world? Mm. Yes, for uh, many of us, this is a new experience. And, you know, what I constantly say is, you know, there's no right or wrong way to feel right now. I think a lot of people are feeling all the things that you just mentioned and more. The idea of an untreatable, highly contagious illness spreading around, which essentially disrupts our normal or routine functioning as we know it, is very likely to increase feelings of fear and anxiety regarding um, our own health and safety or safety of others. You know, people are talking about feeling anger for the disruption that this is causing, the disparities that we're seeing amongst people being able to have access to treatment, the lack of a plan for our future. You know, I've heard patients and and clients, private practice clients, just expressing a range of emotions, a lot of grief from lost opportunities, this being some of my kids not being able to graduate or experience prom, disruption in their schooling and taking exams, um, losing people, right? So losing relatives, colleagues, friends, and there's grief associated with that as far as the trauma and isolation as well. So, you know, being in isolation, we'll say the physical distancing might trigger certain memories for people, um, increase general trauma symptoms. And so I think there's just a lot that's going on. Each day might bring something different, you know, for myself as well. It just depends on the day and what's happening, how much I'm exposing myself to the media and what's on TV, right? Uh, What I'm doing throughout the day to keep myself on track versus getting immersed in sitting and watching, you know, mindless maybe TV, and then I might be experiencing different feelings. So I think a lot of people are experiencing a range of feelings and it's okay. And that's, you know, what I'm telling my clients as well. But like you just mentioned, we are seeing a lot of anxiety, a lot of grief and just different emotions that are, are coming about. 
I'm definitely realizing with myself, with my friends, with my family, with my clients, everyone just sort of recognizing that it is day by day. And there are some days where I'm, you know, way more emotional than the previous day. And then the next day, it's like, oh, wait, what's happening outside in the world? You know, it ebbs and flows in this way where like, it's just obviously natural to go through these different emotions, but mm-hmm. it's like, when is it going to end? And nobody knows that answer. And I've had a lot of conversations with friends who have young children and they are working from home full time or running businesses and they're trying to homeschool their kids and keep their kids happy and mm-hmm. have conversations with their kids about what's going on and trying to educate them, you know, to the best of their ability and to the extent that they need to know. And kids are often called resilient. So I wonder your thoughts on what it's like for kids right now going through this and the experience that you've seen with some of your patients or clients of how this is affecting children short term and long term. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, all children are capable of coping with stress and working through challenges. But obviously, that's something that's taught and modeled by the adults around them. As far as you said, the word resilient, and I love that. It's one of the things that I enjoy seeing with kids is helping them to reach that peak where they are able to be resilient and bounce back from certain challenges or failures or stress or even trauma. But again, it's a skill that's developed as kids grow older. So something like this um, pandemic that's going on can certainly affect children psychologically. I think In the short term, we could see more children presenting with anxiety and fear. Generally, children may express their emotions behaviorally for some younger children. So parents could see more behavioral issues, a lot more emotional ups and downs, just emotional outbursts. Um, Kids might have more questions about just daily functioning in their future, rightfully so, right? Um, When do we go back to school? Are they going to find a cure for the virus? How long do we have to be inside? And a lot of these questions we may not have the answer to. And so I think it's just kind of an ongoing process of reevaluating the information we're getting and what we can relay to kids in a developmentally appropriate way to help them navigate this whole scenario. And also the pandemic could affect children with pre-existing mental health disorders, right? So for kids who already are diagnosed with anxiety or depression or even behavioral problems, as a result of the change in the routine and now parenting capacities, you mentioned, right? Parents are now home with their kids trying to work as well as help the kids with the homeschooling. There can be long-term effects as well. So I think it's just important to provide kids with information as we get it, create structure and routines as much as possible to help children transition during this time to when we return to some of our previous functions that we were doing before. And that can help with what we'll see in the long-term, right? Yeah, it's funny because I've never said there's no right or wrong more than I have in the last four weeks. It's just so relevant to this time because no one knows. There's so many unknowns. Um, I love your, you know, advice there. And I think the routine thing is really important, especially for kids and parents. What are the other tips that you've been providing your patients with that are parents in navigating this time and having those conversations with their kids? I think, um, you know, we start with, especially now that this is an ongoing thing, is helping parents to have conversations with their kids about just the virus in general and the pandemic. Oftentimes you get parents who may want to just shield their kids from what's going on and do a lot of reassurance. Everything's fine. You're going to be fine. This is not going to affect you. But now when we're to the point where kids are home from school and their daily routines are disrupted, you have to kind of talk about, you know, what's going on. 
And so we encourage parents to have those open conversations, again, being mindful of the child's age. So developmentally appropriate conversations about where we are right now in terms of how many people this is affecting and how we're managing. And then I think validating your children's concerns and their emotions. And so when they are getting upset or feeling angry or feeling sad, allowing them to feel that emotion, but then helping them to work through it. And so this is tough for adults as well as children. But for adults, we say the parents, we want them to really model appropriate coping behaviors. And so a good way to help your child is also to help yourself. And so it's helping parents to know when they need to take a time out, when they need to talk about when they're feeling frustrated and what they're doing to manage that frustration. So then their children can learn these same skills. And you already mentioned the big one of just creating some semblance of a routine or structure. It doesn't have to be hour by hour every single day. This is what we're doing. But at least having a routine so kids know what to expect when they're waking up. If it's like the weekday versus weekends, because that helps the kids as well with a sense of control, knowing, okay, well, this is what's going to happen on this day. And I think, you know, those are some of the, those are some of the highlights of what we talk to the parents about. I love the idea of mirroring. I think it's such an important thing here because if children see their parents, you know, hysterically crying and watching the news all day, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it's going to heighten their fear and their anxieties. But if their parents are showing that they're meditating or they're practicing yoga or they're sort of engaging in normal at home behaviors in whatever way mm-hmm. they can, that will be what they do as well. That is so true. And you tap on something that's a little difficult, I think, for all of us, but figuring out what is that appropriate amount of news exposure and media is you want to stay updated. But because this is a pandemic, it's everywhere and it's all the time. And children are going to respond differently to that. So knowing how much of that you're allowing in your household um, when you're watching the news or you're on your phone or you're even having conversations with your spouse in front of your kids, just knowing how much to um, talk about and when to kind of shut that down and move on to something else. Engaging in those behaviors that you just mentioned, right? Doing some exercises and yoga, making sure you're having family dinners, just making sure there's some semblance of a routine, I think is really helpful. Yeah, I am definitely someone who for the first week or two was getting in bed and scrolling on Twitter and being like, oh, I wonder why I didn't sleep last night. Because it's just torture to look at this stuff. But I would totally do it right before I go to bed and be like, this is such a dumb idea. It doesn't help me in any way. So how can we be more compassionate to ourselves right now? Because even, again, conversations I've had with friends who are like, oh my God, I'm a terrible parent, or I don't know what to do, or you know, I'm trying to navigate all of this at once. I feel like I'm not giving my child my all. How do you educate and inform your patients or my listeners who are parents to just sort of have some self-compassion right now? Oh, I think that's very important. The self-compassion piece comes out a lot. I think during times like these, it might elicit all types of emotions. And these are times where we may experience more um, perceived failure or just general suffering. And so I think with the self-compassion piece, it's learning to, we'll say, extend kindness to yourself, right? So what is self-compassion? The ability to treat yourself the same way you'd want to treat a friend maybe who's going through a tough time by showing kindness and forgiveness. And so allowing yourself to have the human experience of feeling and practicing forgiving yourself for mistakes. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. 
That's BetterHelp, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. I think broadly, you know, for parents, many people might be experiencing struggles with child, not, not child care, but parenting, um, frustrations with their jobs, not really being as productive as they'd like to be or they need to be. There's gonna be a lot of worry about finances, maybe kind of experiencing death of family or friends. And so these are all very real experiences. And I think having self-compassion is important because it ultimately is linked to lower feelings of anxiety and depression. And so individuals who might start to be more critical of themselves, like you mentioned with, you know, you're down on yourself because maybe this was not a good day parenting or you just weren't feeling it. And maybe you yelled at your child or you didn't get something done for work. There's a lot of self-blame and what we call kind of should thinking, engaging in thinking traps, but thinking that things should be a certain way. From a CBT perspective, you know, these are unhealthy ways of thinking. And so in terms of self-compassion, it's important to learn how your thinking might be counter to showing yourself forgiveness and changing it to more helpful thinking. That's such good advice. You previously mentioned to me that we can build self-efficacy in the midst of struggle. Can you talk a little bit about what that term means and how it can help us right now? It's not something I'm familiar with. Oh, certainly, yes. You know, you'll often hear me mention self-efficacy as I talk about anxiety um, and mechanisms of CBT treatment in terms of what's effective. This is a research area of interest for me. But also, we know that anxiety is a function of feeling like you don't have control and or the belief that you can't handle a particular situation. So self-efficacy broadly is defined as one's belief in their own ability to succeed doing a specific task or accomplishing something, right? So there's a well-known psychologist, Albert Bandor, who defines self-efficacy this way. And it's basically how you're able to have this belief in yourself to do certain things. So we're going to apply it more so to anxiety. But in essence, it's important to increase efficacy by having small, we'll say, mastery experiences or success experiences. So how this would apply right now is each day, you have your list of things that you need to get done. And so it would be breaking things down into small daily tasks. And that can help to raise your overall efficacy because now you're getting things done and it doesn't seem so overwhelming and daunting. It's just one thing at a time. It seems more manageable. Then also, if you're able to see someone else doing something that you need to do, that can help your belief in yourself that you can do it. And so simply put, this might be if you're in the house, maybe with a spouse and you're parenting and you see that, you know, your spouse has a good day doing one particular task or getting through homework with your child, you might feel more confident that you're able to do that when you see that that person's able to do it. 
there's more that goes into that. But it's just important socially that we're seeing, well, other people are able to do these things. And so that gives yourself confidence that you'll be able to do it too. And so, I mean, I think broadly self-efficacy is important because it just helps us to deal with everyday things. But specific to anxiety, it's very important because it helps us to understand that we can handle things that we think may happen. Again, the basis with anxiety and fear is that something bad's going to happen and I'm not going to be able to handle it. But when you learn that, okay, well, something bad might happen, but even if it does happen, I'll be able to handle it. That's the efficacy piece. Uh, It's less likely that you're going to feel super overwhelmed and anxious about that occurrence. It's interesting because I have a group coaching program where I support small business owners and navigating growing and launching their businesses. And right Mm -hmm. now is obviously a challenging time for small businesses. But I have a spreadsheet where each of my clients on Fridays go in and put in what they accomplish for the week. And prior to this pandemic, they had, you know, 20, 30 things that they were accomplishing within their business. And right Mm -hmm. now it's like, I showered today. Right. I sent this one email. I had this one phone call. You know, it's a lot smaller tasks than they were used to doing because it's Mm -hmm. taking a lot more for them to motivate. Exactly, exactly. I think it's really interesting for you to bring this up and just sort of acknowledge that these minor things are helpful to not only do, but also to share with others for accountability and to show that like we can all do this together and we can all get through this together. Right. And those tasks are going to shift. And that's for most people, right? It's what you can do day by day and it's small things, but that helps you to feel more confident that you can get through the day and get things done. Are there any principles from CBT that people can easily use in their everyday lives right now that you think would be helpful? Yeah, I think so. As I mentioned, CBT can be used as more of a preventative therapy as well. And so it's not necessarily something that's just used for people who have clinical disorders. But there are strategies that people can use who are feeling anxious right now or sad or even angry. One of the big ones is focusing on your thinking, your thought patterns, catching yourself when you're having uh, unhelpful or negative thoughts, right? So this would be a great time to spend a few minutes each day journaling or taking time just to explore your thinking when you're getting frustrated or you're feeling anxious throughout the day and reframing it to a more helpful way of thinking. Um, Especially now, it might be hard to let go of worries about the pandemic, the virus, and we often will feel that worrying about it is useful because we think if we're worrying about it, we're going to prevent these bad things from happening directly to us, and we're better prepared for what's going to come. But we know that's not the case. And so rather than worrying, we know that it's helpful to have an idea of what we can do. And so it's figuring out what we have control over and preparing accordingly. So a lot of people will get stuck in either thinking anxiously, right, about the what ifs of what can happen, or being sad and focusing on potentially the loss of a lot of things. And even though these might be realistic things, the way that we're thinking is not helping our mood. So one of the strategies really is to have helpful, we'll say they can even be kind of like motivational quotes or just helpful thoughts that you either write out and maybe you can post them around your house and your bathroom and your kitchen. So throughout the day, you're seeing these and it's helping to shift your thinking a little bit. I would say that's one of the strategies from CBT is focusing on the thoughts. Another one is changing the routine. And so we already mentioned it's important to have a schedule or a routine, but to help with sadness or just basically a low mood, 
is staying active and engaging in meaningful activity. So what I mean by that is having a list of pleasant activities that you generally enjoy, but keep them written out or keep them somewhere that's visible. And so when you do get to the time where you just don't feel like doing anything, you're just sitting on the couch watching TV, it's like, you know what, maybe I need to do one of these things on this list. And that can help to boost your mood. So it kind of goes hand in hand with the with activity scheduling or planning out your day. I love that idea. That's such a great one. I'm totally going to do that when I get off this call. (laughs) Yeah, I think and especially now that for most of us, we're just in the house and we're not really able to get out and generally do things that we might enjoy outside of the house. It's important to have a list of things that are very easily accessible in your house. Well, and also thinking about the things that you enjoy doing to continue to do those things. I've totally mentioned this on the podcast in the past, but when I had surgery eight years ago and I was in a real dark place, my best friend called me and said, like, what have you been listening to? And I said, what do you mean? She said, music wise, because I'm a huge music person. And my answer was nothing. And she was like, how could you be recovering and going through this situation without the thing that is like your number one saving grace? And so it's that kind of thing of remembering the things that you love, that although I may not be able to go to a concert and see live music, that I can Mm -hmm. still have access to watching shows on Instagram and YouTube and listening to music like I normally do and the importance of that. Exactly, exactly. And I think you also the topic of the socialization piece, you you reached out to a friend, right? And so I think for a lot of people, it's important that they maintain social connections, call people, have conversations, but express how you're feeling. Don't be ashamed if you're having tough feelings or you're feeling sad or anxious. A lot of times people can kind of talk you through, oh, remember, you know, you like doing this, right? Or this can be helpful. So talking about your emotions can help to get some other strategies for you to deal with them. I think that's really important now. And so big question here is, how are you personally handling this? How are you navigating this time? Because obviously you're supporting your patients and clients, but what's helping you and how are you making sure you stay well during this crazy madness? I think that's a great question because myself and I'm sure a lot of other professionals get a lot of questions about, you know, helping others and what can you do? And it's very easy to forget about yourself in all that. And I, so I do find myself spending more time than I'd like on social media, watching news, staying updated, looking for resources, and sometimes it can just feel overwhelming. And so for me, I am a pretty active person. So this kind of staying inside, staying at home has been a little difficult, but I try to make sure I get out and walk around the grounds outside of where I live. Um, I use this Nike app and I started doing some exercises here at home. I'm very much into boxing boxing, kickboxing, working out. So I do a lot of those little workouts. Each day, I try to make sure I'm staying active. And I think I give myself breaks throughout the day, which is also important. I enjoy watching anything that makes me laugh. So very lighthearted shows, I'll take a break to watch um, something short on TV. And that's helpful to help me to just kind of, okay, reset, reframe, get ready for my next patient. I'm doing a lot of teletherapy sessions at home. And so, you know, those can be emotionally draining. It can be just physically, well, physically draining with the younger kids because it's very active. (laughs) So I make sure that I have my breaks throughout the day and just staying socially connected. So my friends and my family have been a huge support. I'm really enjoying doing little virtual parties. (laughs) And I think that's just helpful for me. The virtual parties are really amazing. 
I'm glad I asked that question because it is so important for you to take care of yourself too. Mm -hmm. I remember when I interviewed one of my past guests, Jan Weiss, which was episode 19. Her daughter, Mm -hmm. Lucy, is a patient at the NIH actually. And I asked her like, what's self-care look like for you? And she was like, self-care, what's that? So Mm -hmm. it's so important when you are someone who is such a giver to also make sure that you're taking care of yourself. So I'm glad you've been doing that for you. Anything else that we didn't address that you want to make sure we address, especially as it relates to this time? I mean, I think one thing that here was noted was just really for parents working with kids, there's a lot of concern about how this is going to affect kids as well. And knowing that, you know, they are resilient. And so it's really just important that you continue as a parent to take care of yourself, but help your child through this in different ways and see it as an opportunity to figure out either kind of new interest and talents and helping kids to connect in ways where, okay, well, how can they help during these times? Are there things that you can do as a family to volunteer? Um, Value-focused action is especially important during times like this for adults, but then also for kids to help them have a sense of purpose. And so I say kids and teenagers, especially who are a lot more aware of what's going on and how this is impacting others. I think it's just helpful to remain optimistic that good things can come out of this time as well as you're reconnecting with your family and spending more time with loved ones if you're in the house with them. So, you know, it's balancing out of how we manage the stress that we're feeling, but then also what might be some of the positive things to come out of this. But I would say the big thing we we tapped on compassion, but it's just to be kind to yourself and show compassion for all the emotions that you might be experiencing. We're doing what we can to manage the situation. But it's okay to feel scared or angry or frustrated and unproductive. Whatever feelings you're experiencing are okay. And it's really more about what we do with those feelings. So this is where you want to make sure you're engaging in any positive coping strategies. And we mentioned the CBT. That can be used to reduce just general fears or feeling overwhelmed. Um, So there's a lot out there. There are some resources online that people can use and apps that are out there right now as well. Any that you recommend? Uh, Some of the meditation apps that have been made, I think, free to the public, or at least for the trial, which would be Headspace and I believe Calm. I can give you some other ones that might be helpful. Awesome. We can include those in the show notes so everyone can check them out. Then there are just also a couple of website links I'll share, but Anxiety and Depression Association of America has some great resources listed. And, you know, if you go to the National Institutes of Health as well, the website has some recommendations. So there's definitely a lot out there. And so the big thing is kind of knowing that it's okay and knowing when to ask for help if you need it. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I think there's some really interesting tips here that will be helpful for parents and children. Um, and Mm non-parents. Where can people learn more about you and your work and potentially work with you? Right now, I mentioned I'm at the National Institute of Mental Health. And so I can be contacted directly there through either my email, which is krystal.lewis, L-E-W-I-S at NIH.gov. I have my Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Crystal Lewis. And then my LinkedIn page is pretty active. Um, I think it would be great to connect with people who are really invested and interested in just promoting this whole self-efficacy and resilience. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com 
and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.